Dotnet Rocks, episode 1035, with guest Kathleen Dollard. Recorded Monday, September 8th, 2014. And that's how you do that. Indeed. What's up, my friend? Uh, you know, I uh, had a weekend of making brisket and sorting racks out. Consolidated a bunch of servers down. I, I'm really only running on two servers in the closet these days. So. You know, your next book is going to be called Brisket and Servers. They're Brisket and Servers. That's a good one. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, that's uh, Saturday afternoon at your place. Nice. Oh, I'm planning on pastrami this coming weekend. So one thing after the next. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I uh, I got two of the windows open in the studio. And if you've ever seen pictures, you know that there are inserts in the windows in, right. in, at Pop Studios to keep the noise out and also keeps the keeps it cool in here and gives us a more contained experience. But anyway, I found that the uh, the Connect for Windows 2.0 performs much better when there's a little sunlight, contrary to popular belief because we're sort of uh, um, we're sort of conditioned because the last Connect, the first version of the Connect did not work with sunlight. No, because it, it, it's all infrared, right? It didn't like the bright light. Right, and the Connect 2 is totally different. And not only that, but it likes fluorescent light too. Interesting, which is totally opposite of uh, of the last Connect. And just you know, this is just based on my um, evidence. That's it. Cool. So that's why that's what I got a little sunlight in here, and I can see the river. Nice. And there's a ferry going out. That's awesome. All right, Richard, let's roll that music. All right. What do you got, buddy? Well, if you've done any cross-platform development, or even if you haven't, you might have been, uh, you might have heard about Windows Universal Apps. Yes. Or indeed. Universal Windows Apps, I guess is the, the correct way to say it. Yep. Right. So Universal Windows Apps can run on Windows 8.1 and Windows Phone. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of Microsoft's first step into the cross-platform uh, model. And, and they, uh, you can develop them today in Visual Studio 2013, if you've got uh, the uh, update number three. So what you might not have known is that there's a sample pack, hmm. uh, a bunch of code samples out there on the web that show off universal apps. Yeah. So you can go to tinyurl.com slash universal app samples. And this is it the Windows Dev Center. It's no secret or anything. And you might have gotten there on your own. But in case you hadn't, lots and lots of samples to browse. Nice. So, And they've been downloaded only 85,000 times So, as of this recording. So, you know, there's more people that need to see them. Well, yeah, and I feel like it's early days for Universal Apps, too. We haven't exactly done a ton of shows on them yet, either. Right, we haven't. Just trying to get our bearings on what is this really going to mean? How does it apply? Uh, you know, it, it's because it is still in the CTPs, right? Yep. Yep. So that's it. Know it, learn it, love it. Go check out the samples and uh, see what you're missing, at least. Absolutely. You know? See what people have already built. Yeah, exactly. All right, Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 938, the last show we did with Ms. Dollard back in St. Louis on the road trip, as you call. <laughs> oh, yeah. And of course, we were talking about Roslyn. And this is a while back, you know, we've been talking about Roslyn for forever, right? But this is back in, in January of last, of this year, right. 2014. And Jeff Enyon said, uh, 
Uh, listening to this talk about Roslyn makes me hopeful for one of my most dreamed about features in Visual Studio that may someday become a reality. Being able to step into the compiler as code is compiling. Being able to set a breakpoint for the compiler, get it to stop, and be able to examine syntactic and semantic trees would be incredibly powerful. There are many times where, working with link or lambdas, I get compiler errors like, cannot convert this cryptic interface with three generics to this cryptic interface with three generics. Being able to see what the compiler is actually thinking would make it easier to deal with figuring out difficult compiler errors. Yeah, an unusual problem, you know, it's not the same as edit and continue kind of stuff, but actually being able to see how that code's being assembled on the fly. Maybe we could talk to Kathleen about that, but I'm, I'm with you, Jeff. This is a possibility and we'll, uh, we'll look into it further. So I'll get a .NET Rocks mug out to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8 and Windows 8. All right. And with that, let's introduce Kathleen Dollard. She's been on the show many, many times, going back to the early days, a great friend of ours. She wants to teach you to code better. Coding is her passion and debugging is her challenge. You'll be happier if you do both better. Kathleen's written dozens of articles, spoken at conferences and user groups around the world. She pushes Microsoft to respond to your real-world needs as a longtime MVP and works on her open-source project, Rosalind Dom. She has courses in the Pluralsight Library and a series of weekly C-Sharp 6 webcasts now available for free on Wintellect Now. Welcome back, Kathleen. Hi, how are you doing today? Awesome. And where are you uh, Skyping from today? I'm, uh, I'm Skyping from the East Coast. I'm in uh, Virginia Beach today. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Very civilized. Yeah. You are a world traveler. Yes, well, enjoy it. I do enjoy it. Awesome. C-sharp 6 has been your passion for a long time. Now, I know you're always into the compiley stuff, and, you know, and, and you've been a big fan of Rosalind since, well, since we knew about it anyway. And it's been a long time, hasn't it? It has been. And it. it's, it's, it's really exciting to see it coming to fruition. So um, I'm working with the series uh, for Wintellect about trying to be right up to what I think is stable. And I won't always be right. Uh, but sometimes I'll postpone something and then they'll wind up having a little shift to it. And I'll go, oh, I'm glad I postponed that. So I'm so far, I'm, I'm good. But I'm sure before the end, I will have said something that will change, uh, which is, it, it's just so exciting to see this language design going on in the complete open. Anyone who's interested can go and watch this conversation. Mm. And uh, it, MVPs and some other select people have had some visibility, but we've never had as much visibility as we have now. And this notion that everything that the compiler team is thinking is fair game for them to talk about out in the open is just absolutely amazing. What do you think of the commenters? Uh, to tell idea. you the truth, yeah, I think it's fascinating. To tell you the truth, I have never heard that particular request before myself. And so I'm still thinking it through. And the big thing I'm thinking through is to whether he can do that right now himself. So because mm. it's open source, you can download and with some work, that there are directions you do have to follow for some reasons. Uh, Bill Wagner and his show explained a few of the reasons. But if he was to do that right now today, I think he could actually do what he wants to do today on his own machine when he ran into trouble. Um, I, I could talk a little bit more about why I'm not sure he's going to get what he wants from that. 
But uh, to actually do what he's asking for, step through the compiler, I think he can do that today with that just downloading the the source code and running it via source. Now, if you if he did that, would he have to be like the systems level C plus plus comp sci graduate guy to be able to figure all that out? Well, so he's going to have to work with the compiler trees, and I can talk more in a minute about why I think that's going to be difficult. But within those compiler trees, there will be the messages that what the compiler thinks is wrong, which specifically is the message he's already seeing. So what he's going to have to do is back up and walk through the code where that gets created. Now, one of the great things about these compilers is that they're extremely uh, componentized. So he's going to have a lot of bits and pieces to walk through. And we don't always have exactly of debugging that we want because in this case what we really want is to have a data a data breakpoint that says when this changes I want to know about it um, so I think that there is a chance he's going to do it very gracefully and a chance that he's going to spend a couple of days and throw up his hands in complete despair mm. so um, I really don't know what he's going to run into but I really hope he blogs about it if he gives it a shot because yeah. or if somebody else gives this a shot if you can do that Yes, it would be magnificent. But I don't know about anything we're going to see in C-sharp 7 or further down the road that's going to make that particular scenario easier. We might find something, but right now I'm going to have to say, wow, that's going to be a bit of a big deal for the compiler to expose itself instead of just trying to give you better messages. I mean, which the compiler course, is written in C-sharp. So in theory, you could be stepping through the compilation process. Well, well, that's what I'm saying. I, th I think he can step through the compilation pro process today simply by downloading the code and running it on his local machine because right. I think he can technically do what he wants to do. The question is, can he solve the problem that he's trying to solve in a realistic way by doing that? And that's what I hope if he gives it a try, he blogs either way about it. Um, because I'm, I'm afraid he may get frustrated by the organization of both the compiler, the way that it's written for its own use, and the way the data is written for the compiler's use. Just figure so out the be, right point for the breakpoint of when have you built up the tree sufficiently that you could analyze this generics problem, but not so far that it's already happened. Like just trying to figure out where to be and then interpret a, a parse tree. That's not fun. Definitely. Right. And and so that's exactly why I'm I'm not sure. But there is a specific collection that has items added to it. And so he should be able to find that spot, put a breakpoint there, and then know that a new issue has been logged, and then try to back up from that point. And this is where the code may become convoluted okay. uh, to actually find why that happened. You know, I, I think it's fantastic. The particular item that he talked about, it just fascinated me because I know what my experience is on that particular error. Eight times out of 10, I'll look at that error and I'll tear my hair out. And at the end, I'll find out that I forgot a dot first someplace and that I'm looking at an I enumerable when I mean to be looking at a single item. Mm. Now, we will be able to, Ros with Roslyn, better like statistics. So people, uh, particularly at Microsoft, if we let them have that information or on our own, can say, you make this mistake all the time. Oh, so here's the note you need when this comes about. When you get this message, look for this right now. And uh -huh. that will absolutely happen. And for that particular error, I know that there's something that I, I try to train myself and I'll still spend a minute or two looking at it before I see, oh, that's innumerable on one side and not on the other. Right. 
Well, you know, we should probably start, if we can, go back to your show on 938, which we did in St. Louis, which was mentioned by the caller, and uh, pick, sort of pick up where we left off. You, um, you talked about how important it is to get an abstraction, to get the abstraction of your code, uh, not just to, to understand what's going on, but to, to help you be a better developer, right? Well, I, I don't know if every developer is going to need that abstraction. I think what we're going to gain is the ability for the right people to have that abstraction and build the tools to take us forward, like the one the caller mentioned. But what I've come to realize since that show, um, and, and I kind of knew this, but I really have been overwhelmed by it, I guess, in the last, uh, in the last eight months or whatever, is the best thing about Roslyn is that it exposes the syntactic and semantic information about the compiler trees. The worst thing about Roslyn is that it exposes Same the semantic <laughs> and semantic information from the compiler trees. Right. So this is incredibly complicated information. And for extremely good reasons for a compiler, it's all immutable. Well, if you have a very complex tree and you're digging down, you know, six layers deep and around the corner and in the back alley and making a change, now that change has to ripple up to the entire structure and be changed at the top level because that's the only thing you actually have a reference you can change to. So you wind up having to do almost everything through a syntax rewriter and you do a lot of the exploration through, uh, through a stack, through a, a, a tree walker. And both of these are relatively unusual concepts for .NET programmers to be working with. So it's, it gets it's back a, to my question before: is if you know, in order to really utilize Roslyn, are you going to have to be the comp sci grad? You know, you're going to have to understand all these things that you, you know, most people most people that listen to the show they want to build software. They don't want to they don't want to look under the hood. Right, and there's two sides of it. One is that there are some new concepts, but they're not spectacularly. Com you know, they're not really hard concepts, and there's good examples. On the other side, it's amazingly tedious. It's just really difficult. And so what I ran into is that I had some very specific things that I wanted to do with, with Roslyn that I talked about uh, in that show. Um, specifically, I have a new idea for a way to do code generation, a new kind of template that I really want to complete. And I did the prototypes all directly talking to Roslyn. And what I found was that to do a reasonably complex task directly against the Roslyn trees, you're doing everything we know is wrong about software. You're taking two big complex things and coupling them at the deepest possible level. And we know that's wrong. That's just, we know that. So I stepped back from the problem and built a tool called Roslyn DOM, which is in its very early stages, which is a language agnostic abstraction over Roslyn. And it is mutable. So it's, we can talk about immutability versus mutability, but for this task, I think mutability is the right way to go. So it's a massively simplified structure. And just for one example, um, if you just create an attribute, you can create an attribute with each a set of attributes, with each attribute in a different set of square brackets. Or you can do this with them separated by a comma. Now, no programmer is going to look at that code and think about it differently because a comma was used instead of separate square brackets. But Roslyn, Roslyn itself has to do that. It has to have that level of detail to round trip. And there's hundreds of examples like that. What I've done with Roslyn DOM is I've removed that. So there's a concept of attaching attributes to a item, much more, much more like the semantic tree in Roslyn. 
But the way Rosalind's built as a compiler, the semantic tree often takes a backseat to the syntactic tree when you're tracking information down. So anyway, that's the kind of the short version of why I jumped into this enormous uh, open source project and have been sort of lost in it for the last few months. <laughs> okay. Well, it does seem like maybe in later there'll be tools built to help visualize semantic trees and you know to to, to it would be cool to have a visualizer of the compilation process there absolutely would be but i want that i hope that will be built against a abstraction not directly against the syntax and semantic trees and there's a couple of reasons for that the most fundamental is i want microsoft to be able to uh evolve those trees and so I think that it's important that when the syntax, I want it to be sort of like when we do reflection against the framework, we can do it. But, you know, if they change something because they can make it go a whole lot faster, we just have to fix our code. Mm. And the whole separation of syntax and semantic tree is a concept that if you're building visualizers, why would you care? All you care is that a particular thing is happening. You don't care whether that's from a compiler perspective, a syntax issue or a semantic issue. Right. So it's it's been a ride, I'll tell you that. And uh, I have, uh, Luan Falco has been mentoring me in this. And his attitude is to throw people off the high dive. And I didn't realize how much he did that until I realized that the first version of Rosalind Dom I put on NuGet was broken because I thought I had fixed something and I didn't check it because it was just a quick call with, with Llewellyn. And the next thing I knew, three hours had passed and I had a NuGet package up. And I'm like, wait, wait, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. So there's been a lot of that feeling. Um, <laughs> but it, it's moving forward for sure. And uh, Whitespace just about killed me, but Whitespace is pretty much solved at this point. Uh, so I've uh, about a third of the total code I've written involves trying to get Whitespace handled in a way you can stand it. I'm not trying to do it perfectly. I'm just trying for you not to hate me. And uh, okay. that, that's been the bar I've been working on. And I think I'm there. I think I'm, I'm there in almost all cases. And what that means is I can't break your code. And, and I can't do a vertical white space thing that just gives you a headache. I mean, there's, it's big picture stuff. And not whether there's an extra space after a comma. You can survive that. When you're done with Rosalind Dom, what do you hope that the, the general effect will be on the, on the C-sharp community? Well, there's, there's three. First of all, I want to do the code generation work that I set out to do. And that's really the most important part to me. Uh, the second thing is, is I hope the people that have ideas that are bigger than they can realistically do against the straight up trees will take a look at it to do whatever great thing they're thinking about doing. So that's the second thing I'd really like to do, um, including some pretty broad analysis, um, of code. Um, and then the third thing is, well, there's, I guess, four. The third thing is to do really big things. Um, I'd actually like to build a parallel tree for VB6 mm. because I'd like to give a shot at doing analysis of VB6 in an abstract language way and then taking that directly into syntax or, I'm sorry, directly into an abstraction, a Roslyn abstraction, Roslyn DOM, and then outputting C Sharp or Visual Basic now, Code. Just, just to back up a second, she didn't say VBNet. She no, said VB6. <laughs> right. Th this would be an alternate structure. This would be a VB6 kind of language agnostic thing as a step towards uh, Rosalind Dom in that abstraction. And, and what you really just said is what you want to do is take a VB6 app and move it with limited, with minimal effort to C Sharp. 
I, right? I want to do that with great understanding. And yeah. when we parse and we try to do this at a text level, which people have tried before, um, and in some very de various degree of success, but they've been working at it from a syntax. How does this right. line move over there? I want to step back and look at the abstraction in a big way and look at how we're using variants and how we're doing, um, how we're doing billing comparisons and these basic things that can run into problems when you do VB6 to C sharp or VB.net code. And, and hold that thought for just a minute because now is the time for me to tell you that Coder Camps is changing the way people learn .NET and JavaScript. If you've been learning .NET, on your own, these guys can get you the skills that you need to get hired in just nine weeks. After about a year, the results are amazing. Everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days, and now they made it even better by letting students attend camp online. So check them out at CoderCamps.com. Um, Kathleen, getting back to the VB6 thing, I mean, isn't the biggest problem with VB6 that there's so much stuff in the .NET framework that just doesn't exist in VB6? There are things that you can, you know, in VB6, the way to do something is to call out to the Windows API. And even if you do manage to get a, you know, a, a mapping going, aren't you still left with a lot of com interop code? You know, that, that just seems like there's, seems like that's a very, very ambitious undertaking. And Well, first... It, it, it is it is a tremendously ambitious undertaking and not one I know that, that would actually work. But the idea behind it is that you can actually understand those com interop calls mm. and you're actually going to be working, perhaps even going back to versions of VB6 you can test if you have adequate testing on the VB6 side where you're building into an abstract structure and then you're working with that abstract structure. You're getting to know it pretty well so that you, uh, you can find um, all of your com interop codes, not on a search and replace, but on an, not on a parsing basis, but on an actual, what was the code around this doing? And start pulling out clones and doing some of the other things we also need to do to that code because it's very, very old code. And so we anticipate that it's got long functions and it's got other things wrong with it by today's standards. This and is fascinating whether, to me. How, how would you go about doing that? Would you do pattern matching based on a database of patterns? Well, I haven't done it yet. I mean, <laughs> so that, I mean it's, it's just fascinating a thought experiment to think it, about it how, is. how to approach My, this problem. My, my current thinking is to do it in an iterative basis. So to basically um, be going through at least one set of passes, which is effectively improving the VB6 code in place, um, and then working the, the actual mapping of it across. That's not hard. That, that's, a, that's the easiest part mm -hmm. of it. It's understanding, like you say, all the things that aren't going to map well. To look at code and say, what is the output of that code is fairly easy. To look at code and figure out, what are you trying to do? That's the... That that that's a big that's a big one, and I I think it has to be an interactive um, operation with people that can do mm. more exploration of the intent of the code. We sort mm -hmm. of have to assume on a lot of that code we don't have the original coders, so we can't ask the question directly, but we can go back and and follow up and where's this coming from and here's you know here's the part of the code that was easy here's the part that's not how do we work with that and make uh, make a um, not just a one-off and now we're going to try to fix it in C-sharp, hmm. but a, let's try to understand it in VB6 and solve some of these problems. Um, I don't really hmm. know that it's a completely doable. It's definitely one of the big out there kind of um, ideas. There's a lot of small, I know we can do this ideas, making it easier to use ETW or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, those are the big picture things. And then just to finish up the original question, the last thing I'd like to see is that 
I do believe we need this as a community going forward. And whether Rosalind Dom grows and becomes a big open source project or whether it's replaced by something Microsoft builds or something else, I don't think is as important as understanding that we need to go a step beyond the trees in order to really grab onto an abstraction of the code that we can do great things with. Like, um, I think it was Richard that said, I want to be able to visualize my code. How can I sure. visualize this tree? How can I do it in time? How can I do it as it changes um, with simple things and with complex things uh, as I go along? How does dependency injection map out? Um, how do some of these things that are challenging for us today actually look if we can visualize them? Is the we language can give, itself a visualization of what the code is doing? I mean, that, that's yes. pretty much the most expressive visualization we have, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. And we are working with these, these very highly evolved thread generation languages. We are not going to get probably any more concise on what we can actually put on the line. That's why, in general, um, if you like it, a T4 interface, it's about seven times longer than the code it produces. A Rosalind <laughs> DOM tree is 25 to 200 times longer if you measure it by characters, which is one way to measure it. It's very hard to measure. You can't measure by lines of code or mm. anything like that because a Rosalind, when you, I think, I, I don't know if I said Rosalind DOM there, I'm talking about talking directly to the Rosalind syntax trees. That's, that's about 25 to 200 times more characters. And there's no other way to measure it because you actually can wind up with one line of code that's 150 lines long. And, yeah. and you can't debug that. It's, it's no. just impossible. So right. you start splitting it up. So there's no real way to measure it other than by just like C. characters. <laughs> well, it's pretty bad. I mean, you know, you can write well to, against it. And don't get me wrong. Yeah. And there's certain problems that you can solve. And some of the problems around code analysis, where you have a fairly simple question, you just want to run it across a large amount of code. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing that the .NET compiler framework, as it sits right now, without any other add-ons, it's set up to do some of that work fairly well. And that's where the samples are. Well, it just speaks to this whole idea of us having far more control over the language we're working in, that you could see what it's actually doing and then decide, is, is that what you wanted? Do you want to come at this from another direction? Right. Well, and, and I, I'm really excited. I mean, it's kind of a, a left turn out of this conversation, but I am really excited with what TypeScript's doing because what I really want eventually in, with my generation background is that I want a more semantic explanation of my code sitting on the left and on the right, I want the C-sharp code I'm writing today and I want a pop-up available for the code generation template that went between the two. Mm. And, you know, TypeScript's already shown us that we can go back and forth between two visualizations of our code, two textual visualizations of our code very comfortably. People can write in TypeScript. They don't freak out that it's JavaScript on one side and TypeScript on the other. And I just think that same kind of multi-level thinking is going to be valuable for the next generation of C-sharp as well. Yeah, it speaks to this idea of understanding the abstractions of your code, that we can come up with a more macro or more terse form of what we want to do and then still be willing to look at what's going on underneath, which has always been true. You know, in the end, this all becomes machine code eventually. We just never looked at it. Or if they did, you know, you were Philip Laurel and you were uh, this crazy genius. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and if we if we circle back around to the to C sharp six and the um, the C sharp videos I'm doing and the, the work I'm doing to get that out, um, the work that in, in Bill Wagner's um, episode, with you guys was great. If people want to watch that as well as my videos, I'm not going to go through the details. Um, but when you look at something like uh, like the primary constructors. 
this is moving us exactly in the direction we're talking about. It's allowing us to write less code, less cruft, less ceremony, less stuff. And so we can look at that code more easily. We can digest it in our brains with less background cycles trying to figure out where the semicolons are because there's less semicolons. Mm. And so it's, um, it, it's a tr we're moving this direction kind of no matter what. That's the, that's the way we're going. I'm still struggling to understand how JavaScript fits into this. Right. But, <laughs> but in terms of C Sharp and our strongly typed languages, it's, it's really where we're going. Aren't we all struggling with JavaScript? Aren't <laughs> yeah, we all, I'm afraid I'm really, I really struggle with it. I, I tell you, TypeScript is my... I don't know. We'll see where it all goes. I sometimes I think I sh should. I, I spent a full year in, in JavaScript uh, for a client, and and I have to say it's not something that I've chosen to go back to. Um, I've I've kind of let it go because it was not an easy thing to be working with. Um, I would like to add one other thing to Bill's show. Two things to Bill's show. One of which is that. Uh, things are really dynamic right now. All this stuff going on in the wild means things are changing a lot. And right now there's a conversation going on um, about how we're going to do scoping on a particular feature, the, dec uh, the um, uh, declaration expressions, how we're going to scope that feature right now. People can weigh in on that. It's on my blog. It's on the, the Rosin Coplex site. Um, these features are actually changing even as we speak in, in detail, which is, is super, um, super exciting. Mm-hmm. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to hike into this new jungle and try to see the Rosalind Dom forest for the trees. <laughs> huh? You got there. What do you think? Kathleen's not laughing. Why she yeah, not that's laughing? okay. I'll laugh now. No, she, she's, <laughs> she's like, well, isn't that cute? Oh, yeah. No. I rolled my eyes. Didn't I figured, you I heard your that? eyes rolling. I did. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a SyncFusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, say goodbye to boring enterprise apps. SyncFusion Essential Studio offers more than 500 controls to help you build stunning applications. Just released an amazing set of ASP.NET controls 100% powered by JavaScript. Download a free trial at SyncFusion.com today. And they've also published over 40 completely free ebooks on topics ranging from Hadoop to assembly. Each book, written by a leading expert, contains 100 pages of wholesome technical content with no fluff. Head to syncfusion.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. Nice. So who's our winner, buddy? Today's winner is Thomas Semple. Congratulations, Thomas. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Thomas Semple. And he just won... As I said, the SyncFusion Essential Studio, it's a whole bunch of goodness from SyncFusion. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great sponsor products. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of stuff, technology, handpicked by one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to join to win. And uh, we like to ask our guests, of course, Kathleen, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology a boot, how much would you spend? I'm going to spend all of it. She didn't okay? know. She didn't know what I just said, did she? You've been, have you been hanging out with Richard? Because I noticed <laughs> you say a boot now. 
Oh, my son's in Canada. I get. It. I have a reason. Ah, yeah, I knew yeah. My son. son's. My son is in uh, Ontario. They just moved from Waterloo to Toronto, and uh, his excitement is that uh, he's hopefully going to be going to Hamburg. So I will be spending time uh, next year in Hamburg, Germany. Isn't that uh, so awesome? And the area. So hitting the European conferences. I hope so. It's funny how language is such a virus. Yes, it is. So, um, so w- well, what would you buy with 5000 Okay, so go to tinyurl.com, Hobie Island, that's oh, H-O-B-I-E-I-L-A-N-D. You're prepared. Yeah, tell me what that looks like. Hobie Island, that... Did you see it? Yeah. Okay, so, so you want to tell people about it or you want me to? Okay, no, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so this is a boat that manages to move with all three of the major mechanisms by which humans travel. Uh, so first of all, it's it's a trim it's a it's a catam- I guess it's a trimaran. So trimaran, it's yeah, got, three. It's three a trimaran, and the center of the trimaran is a sea kayak. Okay, and then it's got two outriggers and a Pontoons. sail. Two pontoons and a sail, and that's the way. If you go to that, if you go to that URL, that's the big thing you're going to see. But the cool thing about this boat is that you can take off those uh, outriggers. So the outriggers come off the pole, the mast comes down, and now it's a normal sea kayak. Okay, hmm. so that's pretty cool. But we're not done. We're not done. There's more. So also, it has the Hobie Mirage Drive, which means that, um, and you can look and see how this Mirage Drive works. But it's foot powered, so it's pedal powered. So it's a pedal-powered kayak, which means your hands are free to photograph or just hang out, drink, whatever you're doing in your kayak. Um, and so it, all three of those things, uh, that boat can do. And that's right. what I think is really cool. So and can, I have enough money left over. So you can kayak but, and yeah. you, can, you can kayak with paddles. You can mm-hmm. put the pontoons on and pedal. Or mm-hmm. you can put the sail up and just go for a sail. Right. If you got good balance, you can stand up and pole it. But I'm not a real good poler yet, so I'd, I don't know about that. So That's pretty yeah. awesome. I yeah, like and that. I have enough. I have enough money left over for a GPS and a fish finder. I don't fish, but I want to know where the bottom is before I run into it. So I want a bottom finder. Okay. I know how deep it is. So yeah, depth finder. And do you have any specific GPS in mind? Well, there's a, there, it's one that amazes me because of the low price on it. So if you go to tiny URL, Lawrence E3, so that's L-O-W-R-A-N-C-E E3, so two E's next to each other, that is $100. It's right at a $100 price point. And that includes the transduce, transducer and the uh, and the thing you hold in your hand. So it's the whole nine yards for right at a $100 price point. And uh, that is just absolutely amazing to me because I, you know, I think it's cool to know so what's down there. So that's a fish finder for a hundred bucks. I, I, yeah, I care more that it's a depth gauge because I don't actually fish because I think they're so beautiful that I will eat fish in a restaurant. This is mm. awful to say. I'll go to a restaurant and eat fish, but if I look at a fish in the in the river, it's hard for me to imagine pulling that out and eating it. Mm. It's so beautiful. Fish are just such lovely creatures. So mm. um, I, I'll eat them, but lovely I have a hard time and catching. Tasty. Oh, yes. dilemma. <laughs> dilemma. Yeah, I think you the thing you'd want to add to this little rig would be an EPIRB, right? An emergency locator. Yes. Oh. Yes, but that I thought might push me up over the the five thousand dollar limit. Four hundred bucks or so, you know. Yeah, and what is it? A hundred dollars a year now, or is it a little cheaper now? Yeah, it depends on the unit, but you you can get them down there. It's yeah, kind of worth it, you know. They keep you alive. 
Well, I used to think about getting that when I was, uh, I haven't been hiking alone a whole lot recently, but I used to hike alone and seriously think about carrying one of those. And if anybody likes that technology, one of the cool things about it is that you can get one that also does text messaging. Hmm. And that's really cool for two reasons. One is that it's not emergency only. So you can buy, like if you're on a big ship or you're on the ocean, you want absolute guarantee that if you hit the button that says help, that's what's going to happen. So right. this is a little different market, but it's one that lets you text to your friends, lets you give regular texts, lets you do uh, various things like that, including text communication with um, potential first responders. So that's the one I wanted because if I'm in Colorado and I've just been bit by a snake, I have a little bit different reaction than if I've been, if I'm there and I've just gotten lost. And if they can just help me over through text, they may not have to come and find me. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's really interesting how that technology has changed as well. Have you seen, yeah, the, the Spot makes a great unit. Their Gen 3 unit's like $170. Yeah. And, it, and it's a messenger as well as an emergency locator. Like you can do all of that stuff. Right. That would be, that'd be totally awesome in some environments. Um, if I was like way, way, way remote where the only, like in the wilds of Alaska or on the ocean or someplace where the only thing between me and dying was that unit, I might not want the $170 spot. I might want something a little bit more rugged. Hmm. Um, but for normal people, I think that's probably a really interesting choice. Hey, let's get back to C-Sharp 6 and some of the things that maybe you've been talking about on your webcasts. And uh, tell us about your webcasts first, and then let's get into some of the some of your thoughts about C-Sharp 6 in general. Yeah, so um, it's, it's great. Uh, Winlick now is uh, putting these uh, five-minute webcasts up for me, uh, and that is it's fantastic because it gives people a weekly. Every week you can go in and find a little bit more about C-Sharp 6, and I will be doing what I can. Uh, to have that be the stable features and things I think will change. I'll postpone a little bit. Uh, there's some guesswork in that, so don't be too mad at me if I mess up. Uh, but it's been great. And, and it's interesting because I actually am an author for both Pluralsight and Wintelect Now. Uh, and I, I really want to give a shout out to both companies because they have been fantastically supportive. Uh, their catalogs are different in some very basic ways. And so certain content that I have makes more sense in one catalog or the other. And the fact that uh, everybody has been just amazingly professional and understanding and supportive through this process of saying, look, you know, neither one of you are right now a complete fit for me uh, has been absolutely fantastic. So I really want to give kudos where they belong there. Um, and I think video is really important, but I really hope to get back in the classroom too, because uh, the more I do videos, the more I think people need to be in a room sometimes. Um, there's certain content that is awesome in videos, and the new C-Sharp 6 stuff is one of those things that's just awesome in a video. But if you're trying to, like, go back and plug holes in your knowledge about, you know, GC and generics and um, uh, threading and complex things like this, it's pretty tough to do it in a video and then apply that back to your own work. And so I think that there's times that um, instructor-led training really should have a resurgence right now. And I would love to be part of that. I'm, I'm working on some things where hopefully I will be in a classroom. Uh, I don't want to say anything just yet, but hopefully within six months or so, I'll be back in a classroom, you know, working with uh, and building on some really great content. So that's, I, I'm hoping to do that. And I'm hoping to maybe do some, uh, you know, I think the perfect relationship for a lot of teams is a mentoring and training combination where somebody's coming in and training Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and Tuesday and Thursday, they're pairing. So uh, mm -hmm. hopefully some of that stuff will come together. And, uh, you know, 
C-sharp 6 is going to be awesome because it's going to uptake very gracefully. There's new features you can use and you can ignore them. Uh, it's, it's not going to be like, oh, there's this big stuff you really, really have to do now. It's going to be kind of graceful uptake. I think the things people are going to absolutely get crazy about is Visual Studio. Because uh, the next version of Visual Studio has also been just totally loosened up by having better information to the better ability to get the information the compiler has. So one of the things it's already got is this little light bulb thing. And I actually think the light bulb itself is very hokey. I can do without the light bulb. What, what is what, the light bulb thing? Okay, so the light bulb is that if there is a way that you can refactor your code, when you hover over it, it has a little light bulb. And Neat. I understand that like resharpen some people have done something similar in the past. That's not the cool part. The cool part is that once you get there, all you have to do is alternate period. So you're used to hitting control period to get your fixes. Now you hit alternate period to get your refactoring. It means that the amount of time that you spend refactoring like an extract method, by my just rough work, it's about four seconds and about five or six mass clicks. It goes from that to being well under a second and two, ma two keystrokes plus typing in your new name. It's wow. absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. People are going to absolutely love that. And there's there's another thing which was announced, but it's uh, it's not gotten a lot of press yet, which is perf tips. So perf tips are while you're debugging your application, you're running in the compiler, you're going to get a little data tip next to different code that's called that says how long it took when it ran last time. Huh. Now, this is not 100%. Awesome. This is not, you know, like bet the bank on this stuff. But this is like, oh, maybe you know there's what? a problem there. How many times have you written a little timer thing just to see? I wonder how much time it takes from here to here. And, mean, how how many, often, yeah. and how often have you stepped code just to say, oh, let me get a rough idea now. Let me just step the code in the right. one that I can see. That's the one I have to go back to. Well, all mm. that is right there in the code now. That is really cool. That is cool. That's yeah, and, very cool. And, um, you know, we actually have a good idea of when this is going to come out as well. And it's really surprising to me that more people don't know this. Um, Soma actually told us. And he said this in a blog post, oh, I don't know, a few months ago. Um, and when they announced Visual Studio 14 being named Visual Studio 14, they, in that same blog post, um, they announced that it was early 2015. Wow. So that's when we can expect to see this. It's been written by the man. Now, whether I, early is January or April, but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic from looking at things that it's going to be closer to January than April. But that's just my guess. I, I don't know the answer to that. You never know for sure when it comes to shipping something as big as Visual Studio. You know, there's, a, there's always stuff. And uh, I don't envy those guys. It's a big project. But yeah, the blog post, there's a blog post back in June where it says available sometime in 2015. Okay. I'm sorry. I thought it said early. Okay. Then early is my guess. Um, but you know, they've really changed. Richard, what you said about it's hard to ship something that big is absolutely true. And those of us that were around know that they almost didn't ship, um, uh, .NET 2.0. It almost killed them. And yeah. then Visual Studio 10 almost shipped being unusable. And so both of those, it was just like this just in the nick of time kind of thing. Well, well they pushed back 2010, right? Like they, I think they pushed it six weeks or something oh, purely for performance. It was a mess, but they've changed their model and they've changed the model the way we all want them to change their model. They are moving much closer to continuous delivery. They're 
pretty darn close now. So if they have a feature that is not ready for prime time, but they're working on it, they've been playing with it internally, and they don't know about it, all they have to do is flip a switch on some of these, and you don't know it's there. But the code is still there. So they don't have to go through big machinations in order to adjust their code. So because of that, their Visual Studio is doing pretty close to a continuous delivery. And if they have features that aren't ready, whatever their ship date is, they'll just push them off for the next quarter because they're doing the quarterly releases or more or less quarterly uh, updates. And then they, so I think that we're not going to run into that. Can they get it out? I think it's going to much more be a business decision of do we have enough yet? Are we ready? Is this the right time for Microsoft? I think those are the basis on which that they'll do the decisions because I think you know, they could be ready, they could be stable in a few months from now. They're, they're really close stability-wise. Um, I've got CTP3 running all the time now. And uh, it annoys me because I don't have code lens in it. And I didn't realize I'd gotten addicted to code lens, which is unfortunate because it's a very expensive tool for most people. Um, but I'm having to live without it in 14. But that's the only reason I ever go back to 2013. Well, I also wonder, you know, the the downside to this steady stream stuff is the same problem we got into with stuff like Silverlight back in the old days, where you get to a point where you're not sure who's got what configuration anymore. So I'm just hoping we could strike a balance between here's a milestone that everybody should be at, and then there's a steady slipstream of improvement, 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 you choose to take it or not. Right. And on that's a, that's a big statement about the .NET framework. Um, and I think it's a statement about uh, C Sharp and Visual Basic as well. I think they will they will ship with a pretty coherent set of new features. But they're getting pretty stable. They still have work to do, but they're getting fairly stable. Um, and Visual Studio itself is the one that I think is going to be very dynamic uh, in updates. And I think we can handle that as long as our projects open across any of those versions. It's not the same as having our clients running multiple different versions. Unless, of course, you're a third-party vendor, and then I'm sure it'll be a headache for them. So you, you <laughs> listened to Bill Wagner's show that that he did on this. Is there anything that you would like to add to his his favorites list about C Sharp Six? You know, he did a great job uh, covering it. Um, I I think that the big thing is that there is the scoping changes. So he talked a little bit about uh, the backing fields on primary constructors and that was actually removed and it was, and he didn't know that because of the timing of when things were removed. Um, That was removed because they looked already at what pattern matching was going to be. And the conversation around pattern matching is because they're thinking that far ahead and the backing fields turned out to be something they thought would break pattern matching. And so that's why they pulled that particular feature. Um, but those are, gosh, those are the big ones. Um, I, I don't have a list right in front of me. Uh, it's it's uh, the, the triumvirate, the set of primary constructors, auto property initializers, and uh, getter-only auto properties. Those three working together, I think, is the really big win with the second and third wins being the null conditional, and the cha- name has been changed to null conditional for some good reasons, um, and then the uh, um, the declaration expressions. Those are all, I think, really, really big guys uh, that we've got coming up. And really, the big story isn't any of that. The big story about C-sharp and Visual Basic is we have new compilers. 
our old compilers were so much bubblegum and duct tape that if we, we couldn't sleep at night if we thought about what the world was like when those compilers were, were first written. They were, started <laughs> before two, they were started before the year 2000. So right. if you think of the code right. you yeah. wrote in 1999, and you are now dependent every day on code that was started before the turn of the century. And that should absolutely scare the crap out of us. So the big story actually isn't the exciting one. If all they did is have our code run exactly the way it did before, that would be a win. And instead, it's going to run better with some cool new features. So I think we went all the way around. Hmm. Yeah, it's it. I remember reading pieces or maybe it was conversation where they're talking about, do we implement the bugs too? <laughs> Right. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, that's actually been a really big ongoing question. And some bugs have been implemented and some bugs have not. And, you know, where, how do we, how is the communication going to happen when things change? There was one perform just recently, uh, in the last couple of weeks, there was a performance feature that would have taken one very fast operation and made this very, very fast operation 25% faster. And that's a lot. That's really, really a lot. Um, and it might happen a lot. It might be done in a tight loop, but the implications to other code was too big and it doesn't look like that's going to make it in because it breaks too much code. So um, that's, you know, you, you there's going to be some of that all the way around. And I think this is a really bad release to break code on. Um, I think that if there's times that, that we need to have breaking changes, that this isn't the time to do it. This is the time to look at the, the good but limited changes in C-sharp and VB, some fantastic changes in Visual Studio. I don't think they're done yet. I think CTP, um, we're in CTP3 right now. We can expect to CTP4, and we might see some number after that. And I think we probably have some pretty big stuff that's still going to come down the pike uh, in Visual Studio. Kathleen, this might be a weird question out of left field, but I just feel compelled to ask it. Do you think that there's such a thing as knowing enough as a developer? I think we lost the ability <laughs> to know enough at least five years ago. I can remember, oh man, I can remember when, you know, I knew a lot, but I knew people who knew almost everything. Yeah. And now I'm like, I talk to people and everybody knows the spaces they don't know. And when I know somebody isn't a good coder is when they talk about the stuff they know as though that was all that was there. Because everybody I know that's truly a hot coder goes, oh, yeah, but I don't know about that. Oh, yeah, but I don't know about that. And so we're really, we really have to be aware of our weak points uh, in order to be strong and robust programmers, yeah. which is the best we can still be. Which now. is really knowing about yourself, isn't it? I mean, that, I think knowing what, you know, how I learn and what I do best is and what I what my downsides are, you know, my pitfalls. I think that's really helpful to me because then I then I can figure out how to navigate the morass of knowledge. Right. It's, it's figuring out what to look up when, you know, sort of on demand learning that that, uh, you know, it's both a blessing and a curse. We're just trying to get above the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> know enough to know we don't know. Right, Absolutely. And, and I think that knowing where you where you being, you have to have a space where you are competent. And being able to write C-sharp and VB code is a, is a core competency everybody needs to have some of if they're writing C-sharp and VB code. Mm. If they're writing JavaScript code or they're managing or whatever their core competency is, you need to know it. You need to have it. You need to continue to get better at it. But then around that, understanding where you're strong and where you're weak, and as much as possible, try not to be the smartest person in the room. 
I always want to be the, the maybe not totally the dumbest person in the room, but, but close to it because I learned the most. Um, it's, I was working with some really, really super smart people in semantics. They're like the folks, Dave McComb and those folks. And I once told him, I said, when I was working on your project, I loved it because I was the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> and I said, I was dumber than the intern. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, he said, I was dumber than that intern too. So, <laughs> you know, it was, you work with people, you want to surround yourself with people. And, you know, I guess one thing I'd say is that um, almost everybody in this industry is really approachable and an awful lot of people actually are available for hire that people don't think about. So, you know, if you have a, if you have a debugging problem, you know, you can call John Robbins. If you have an indie framework problem, you can call Julie Lehrman. Um, you know, you you can you can get in you can get actually directly in touch with some of the people in the industry. Of course, they're making a living, so they're not going to do it for free. Mm -hmm. But um, there are a lot of routes to get better and to network with people that are better. The local user groups mm -hmm. remain uh, really top on that, which is why I still continue to support them and you know go around the world speaking at them. All right, one more thing before we jump off here. You, you said you become a big fan of Slab, S-L-A-B. What is yeah. that? Okay, so I don't remember if I've talked on your show or not, but I am a huge fan of the event source class oh, yeah, that was introduced in .NET 4.5. And I, so we did do a show on that. That's great because it's really important stuff. Well, what I found is that it's not very accessible to people because they don't get it very well. And the patterns and practices people wrote something called the semantic logging application block. Now, the, the reason I didn't initially push people to that is that if you actually start using SLAB, I think that, which is a horrible acronym, but I think after about six months, you're going to find you're actually not using it. You're using the underlying pieces of event source and you've kind of, you're not even hardly using SLAB anymore, but it's the on-ramp. And so if you want to up your game on logging, which I think everybody should be doing right now, uh, every old tracing mechanism we have, and that includes Log4Net, every single thing will destroy you in a high-performance environment. Uh, going directly to the operating system via ETW is fast enough you can leave it on in production. So you can do 10,000 logging messages a second without seeing it. Now, you're not going to do that many. So you can absolutely keep this stuff on in production, do black box testing, have the last five minutes before you crash. But the on-ramp is tough if you just go straight to event source. The on-ramp becomes very, very easy if you use the semantic logging application block. And if you know the history of the application blocks, you might be thinking, oh, I don't want to like get into that stuff because everything's all coupled and I have to make this big investment. And it's not. It's absolutely independent. You're putting some very, very small libraries on top of what's already in .NET 4.5. So I'm a huge fan of it, and uh, I'd encourage anybody who wants to look at up upping, getting better at their logging, uh, to look at that and get a better logging story. All right, I think that's the show. Okay. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. It's always great to talk to you. And I mean that sincerely. I mean, every time we talk, uh, I get, wow, that's a great idea. I never thought of that. That I get that syndrome constantly. So thank you, Kathleen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.